Well, good morning, everybody. So good to see all of you out there. I want to add my welcome to Shaka's welcome from earlier and say we are especially glad to see you if you're here for the first time. And we want to greet you, especially if you're here as someone who's considering what it means to be a Christian. Um, We would love the chance to talk to you more about what it means to follow Jesus and to trust in him as your only hope in life and in death. That hope is what gathers us here week after week after week, on the day that Jesus was raised, the first day of the week, to listen to the same word explained to us over and over and over again, because everything we hope for is based on it. We'd love the chance to talk to you more about what that is, and we'd love to give you a copy of the Bible. If you don't own one, we've provided copies of the Bible at the center of each aisle, up under each chair. Um, If you're not sitting on that uh, in that chair, flag somebody down who is, and they'll pass it over to you. We'd love for you to take that with you as our gift to you, and it'll also help you to have it in front of you for the next little bit of our time together this morning. Every week, uh, our services build to a chance to hear from God's Word. And it will really help you to engage in that time if you've got the part of, of the Bible that we're talking about open in front of you so that you can follow with me uh, point by point as we work our way through the details. This morning we're going to be looking at Acts chapter 1. So I'm going to ask you to go ahead and flip over there. Uh, if you're not familiar with the Bible and where to find that, you can look in a table of contents at the front of the, of the Bible and it'll, it'll tell you where to go. Acts chapter 1, the first eight verses is what we're going to look at together uh, this morning. Um, one of the highlights in our family down the, down the, uh, t- towards the end of this past year was the weekly release of the latest Mandalorian episode on Disney+. Plus. I don't know if any of you guys are in, as into it as we are. Probably not, actually. It would take a lot of into it for you to reach our into it level. Uh, one of the things I've noticed about how we have engaged that series is that I think, by my recollection, this is the first time that my children have ever had a serial uh, series that's released weekly rather than all at once. You know, they're used to like Daniel Tiger's Neighborhood season 12, like being available to them all at once and a big drop on PBS Kids or something like that. The, the, the cliffhanger is not something they've ever experienced, where you, where you watch something that ends with some unresolved tension, some big thing hanging over the story that you're invested in, and you have to then... Wait to see what happens next. It was fun to watch them engage with that blessing and curse. It is a blessing and a curse, isn't it? I mean, it's awesome at one level, the way that it draws you in, but also difficult to sit there on your hands wondering what's going to happen to that baby Yoda and not be able to tell for a whole other week. As I was preparing for the study of Acts, I realized in a new way, I don't know if it was because we were also dealing with those cliffhangers in our family, or if it was just a new and deeper understanding God was giving me about this chapter. But I I realized in a new way that that is exactly where Luke has left his readers at the end of his gospel and where he's going to pick them back up again at the beginning of Acts. Last week, we did a bird's-eye view of the whole book. And one of the things we tried to point out is that it really helps to know that this is part two of a story that began with a gospel that we call the Gospel of Luke. That he tells a story about Jesus' life and teachings, especially building to his death and his resurrection in part one. And that here in part two, he picks up that story to tell us what Jesus is going to continue to do now that he's risen from the dead. What we get get in this opening section of verses is an opportunity to put ourselves into the perspective of Jesus' first followers and of Luke's first readers before they knew where this story was going, 
to kind of imagine, it's almost unthinkable for me, but, but imagine being one of the first viewers, say, of Empire Strikes Back, and, and it ends. And you've got to wait, I don't know how many years it went between Empire and Return of... This is a, a Star Wars reference, another Star Wars reference. Sorry, guys, but sort of on the brain. To actually have to sit there and wait. It's hard to now, as, as, as someone who grew up with these stories, to, to, to even imagine not knowing where the whole thing is going. But, and, and it can be that, that hard for us as readers of, of Luke's books, if you're familiar with him and grew up with him. I think today we have an opportunity to sort of put ourselves back into the perspective of these first followers and first readers and, and imagine what they saw, what they wondered about, what they hoped for. And one of the reasons it's going to be important for us to put ourselves in their place and to take on that perspective is that Jesus... In these verses before us now, and in a way that sets up the rest of the book, radically shifts their perspective for them. They came into this part two, into this sequel, expecting one thing. And right here at the very beginning of it, Jesus tells them to expect something different. It's a sequel they didn't expect, and it it may be a sequel we don't expect So this morning, we may need to have our perspective shifted just as they did. If you've got your worship guide, I want to give you some markers that you can use to help follow through what I'm going to do with this story together this morning. So if you've you've got a worship guide, up near the top of the sermon notes page, I want to encourage you to write down the question, now what? That's where the story picks up. Jesus has lived. Jesus has died. Jesus has risen again. And the apostles come into this story wondering, what's next? Now what happens? And in in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 8 this morning, I want to show you three things that Jesus says that answer that question. Now what? Three answers that reoriented what his apostles were looking for and that may reorient for us what we're looking for as followers of Jesus who are waiting for his return. Now, I want to uh, begin by reading these verses together. I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of God's word as I do that. And then we'll dive into these precious details together this morning. This is the word of the Lord from Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, It's not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is God's word. You can be seated. Now what? That's what they're wondering. And the first part of Jesus' answer is that now we wait for his kingdom. Now 
we wait for his kingdom. That's verses 1 to 7. I want you to think about these first verses of Acts chapter 1 as kind of a recap of the final chapters of Luke, especially verses 3 through 5. Think of it as also a kind of scenes from the last episode moment where, where there's been anticipation building. There's an excitement that comes with with what's just happened and with what might happen next and a craving to know how it's all going to end up. Every detail that Luke chooses to communicate, here in verses 3 to 5 especially, he chooses to set us up to understand what the disciples expected would come next. And I think he chooses so that we, later readers, get to share their surprise at what Jesus actually tells them. I think in order to understand it, I mean, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start to unpack the answer Jesus gives them to shift their perspective, but I think we have to start with what their perspective was on the front end. And I think if we, if we with use some empathy here to imagine how these details that Luke puts in front of us would have landed on them when they first experienced them, I think we'll be set up in the way we need to be. Think about these details. Think about what Jesus has already done and about what Luke is recapping here in these verses. Start with verse 3. For example, Luke tells us Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. Let me just stop right there. Friends, these, these folks that he lived with and, and interacted with during his time on earth were not more gullible than we are. They'd seen Jesus suffer and die. They were there for it. Saw the arrest, saw him tortured, saw him humiliated, Saw him killed. And they had categories for a death like this. There was no shock that someone who claimed the things that he did, did the things that he did in public like he did, would draw enough attention of the powers that be to get himself killed. They had ancient accounts of deaths like this. Great heroes leading movements that were squashed by the powers that be. There were accounts like that. They knew what to do with his death. There weren't accounts of heroes come back to life again. No, that's off the map. The idea of a dead man returned to life again, not just as an ideal who lives on in his followers, but as a fully human body. Friends, that was not any more plausible to them than it is to us. They weren't looking for it and didn't have any categories to use to explain it. Try to imagine the roller coaster these men had been on. After, after watching Jesus as he was alive, after seeing him do the miracles that Luke's first book tells us he did, after listening to this teaching from Jesus that, that was of a character they had never heard from anyone else, an authority that they'd never experienced before, after seeing him and coming to believe that he really is the one we've been waiting for, watching those hopes rise like the upswing of a roller coaster going up a hill, only to watch him Arrested, beaten, tortured, crucified, and then buried. Their hopes got buried right along with them. This can't be the Messiah now. Because whoever was coming to sit on David's throne was going to live forever. And then three days later, this same man they knew appears to them in a body they recognize, speaks to them with a voice they can hear and understand, eats with them even, food that he somehow digests. 
though he's able to walk through locked doors. And now where are their hopes? Those hopes that had died and been buried. Now they're soaring at a a level they'd never reached before. People don't die and rise again. They know that, but he did. Who is this guy? What's next? Look a little further into Luke's recap. He appeared to them during 40 days and was speaking to them about the kingdom of God. Well, there's context for those words too, friends. What drew them to Jesus at the very beginning was what Jesus had to say about the kingdom of God, what he was teaching about as he went around doing incredible works of power. The kingdom of God was one of Jesus' favorite themes while he was on earth. And he was just picking up a theme that Israel had been learning about from their prophets for hundreds and hundreds of years before Jesus. The kingdom of God was God's promise to his people that he would set up on earth a kingdom of peace and plenty, a kingdom in which there would be no more injustice, in which all the things that had gone wrong would be made right, in which all the things that had been broken would be redeemed, in which sin and sorrow would have no place because at the center of this kingdom would be God himself ruling over his people from his holy mountain. These were promises they had grown up with. They knew about this kingdom, and Jesus talked of this kingdom in ways that drew them in. And now here he is, resurrected in this incredible new body, teaching them about the kingdom of God they had been looking for all their lives. Can you imagine? It's one thing to read these promises of a kingdom in your weekly synagogue meeting growing up, maybe even memorize some of them and pray over them as an adult. But can you imagine hearing this kingdom taught to you by a man who was dead before your very eyes and now is alive again, claiming to be the king? who will rule over this kingdom, their hope for this kingdom is zeroing in now. It's zooming in on this specific resurrected body right in front of them. And rightly so. It should. That's the point. And on top of that, as if that's not enough, look at one more detail from these verses. On top of that, Jesus himself gives them a command that is pregnant with hope and expectation. He tells them, verse 4, Do not depart from Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. The Holy Spirit is coming. Every bit of this raises their anticipation level. They knew that the Spirit had been promised. They don't understand that much about him yet, but they knew that God had promised as part of his coming kingdom would be a presence among them where what had been reserved for the temple would now somehow incredibly be theirs. And they knew what it meant to have God with you. Because God was with his people Israel when they were enslaved in Egypt. And because he was with them, the mightiest empire in their world came tumbling down as the sea parted for them to pass through and collapsed back again upon their oppressors. They knew that when God was with you, city walls, impregnable, standing between you and the promised land come tumbling down because you walked around them a few times and blew trumpets. To have God's power with you as this promise promised would, would be. Oh, that was, that was to see the kingdom come. That's what they thought. Now he's going to be with them, not just under the banner of his own son, a man crucified and risen again, but in the person of his own spirit. What would happen next? 
What would a people promised a kingdom of peace living under a tyrannous foreign power be expecting to happen next? I don't think that's very hard to imagine. And I think that's where verse 6 takes us. So here we've fast-forwarded through a gospel's worth of details. Scenes from last week's episode. And they lead to verse 6. So, obviously, when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? This is the sequel they're expecting. Now what? Now we overthrow the Romans. Now we establish justice once and for all. Now the graves give up their dead. Now the kingdom comes. Here we go. And now look at what Jesus says to them. Verse 7. I read this with a gentle tone, not scolding. It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. See, their question makes sense, but he's redirecting them. He's not scolding them for the question. He's raising a different focus for their minds and their hearts. He's telling them that this establishment of the kingdom you're longing for, well, that's above your pay grade. It's not for you to know the time, much less for you to bring it in. For now, in other words, built into verse 7, for now, you wait. They won't be passive, far from it. We shouldn't be either. We're going to talk about that in a moment. But it is important to know, before we get to what the apostles and and later even we ourselves are supposed to do. It's important that we acknowledge what isn't theirs or ours to do. We have to start here and let our perspective be be shifted along with theirs. We need to know, in other words, that Acts, the whole story we're going to consider together this year, plays out in what you might call an in-between time. When Jesus came to earth... The Bible tells us that was God himself entering our history. And that with Jesus, in the person of Jesus, the kingdom really was coming in its king. There is a sense in which it's already here. It's already begun. His resurrection is the ultimate testimony to it. What Paul will later describe as a kind of first yield and a harvest because his body is no longer held by the grave. We know that one day ours won't be either. The kingdom is here in him. But for God's reasons, reasons that we can't see and that that aren't given to us, it's also a kingdom that, that hasn't come all the way all at once. It's already but not yet here, in other words. And as Christians, we live our lives in that meantime, in between. And that means we live our lives as Christians waiting on the Lord, just as his people did. We live as a people who wait. So, so let me push this just a little bit further. What that means, friends, is that, yes, by all means, we study what the Word has to say about the kingdom of God and celebrate the beautiful message that it teaches us on that topic. There is a lot more to the gospel than, than just me and my personal relationship with Jesus. That's for sure. 
But I have noticed, maybe you have too, just in, in reading about Christians from generations past and then in paying attention to my own generation too, one thing that I've noticed is, is that when we tend to rediscover, if you will, the importance of the kingdom to the Bible story, that the, that the Bible story, the gospel itself, is bigger than just me and Jesus. When we, when, we, when we reestablish the importance of it, recognize it fresh in a fresh way, we can so easily be tempted to overestimate our place in establishing it. It's, it's one thing to say, this is the end game. This is what God has promised. This is where it's all going. It's another thing to say, all right, let's go do it. Let's build it. How about this week? I think perhaps, especially in the arrogance of our youth, we tend to go there. We want to be on the ground floor. Jesus' disciples certainly did. Right before he's crucified, he's having to redirect them from their own questions about whether or not they get to sit next to him when he comes into his kingdom. They want the seat right next to the throne. That's what their minds are on. And and I think he may be subtly, softly redirecting them here. Not to focus on their role in establishing a kingdom. Not to insist that it's established now. And we need to be challenged in that way too sometimes. Maybe you do. I know I do. Sometimes with what you might call the arrogance of youth, when we rediscover the theme that the gospel is as big as all the world and its implications, we tend to think that we are seeing something that others have never seen, so now the real work can begin, as if the arc of history bends towards my birth and my coming of age. I'm here. Will we now restore the kingdom? Might as well. Let's get to it. To whatever extent, That's in us. Jesus' gracious and gentle words, redirecting his disciples' understandable urgency, redirects our focus too. Not telling us that the kingdom's not coming, because it is. Not telling us that the kingdom isn't the end game, because it is. Not telling us that our lives should be lived out in the light of that kingdom and in hope of its coming. They should be but telling us that it is not for us to know when, much less how that kingdom will come. It is not for us to build that kingdom, much less less actually take into our own initiative the path between now and then. Our role is to wait for what is going to require an absolute intervention of God. Here's another way to say it. And in this comes the hope of the gospel for us today. When this kingdom comes, it will come as God's gift, not as our achievement. And when we accept that, we gain a humility that is liberating and life-giving. Friend, if you're here this morning and you're evaluating what it is to be a Christian, I want you to know that this redirection of Jesus for for, for his own followers' expectations of him has life and hope for you in it too. See, if the kingdom that God has promised us, if it depended on the strength of its warriors, then only the strong would be invited into that kingdom. The weak would be a vulnerability to it. If the kingdom that God had promised us only comes through the purity of its people, when they get their act together, cleaned up enough to be worthy of his kingdom, as some in Jesus' time believed, then only the pure would be invited into this kingdom and your sins would be a threat to it. But this kingdom that Jesus has come to build, 
It's offered as a gift of grace to anybody who's willing to acknowledge that they don't deserve it, that they have been its enemy before they would be made its friend, that they need a forgiveness that they could never earn. If you can acknowledge that, then this kingdom is for you because the only way in it is the forgiveness that Jesus died to be able to offer you. Forgiveness for your own decision to live your own life rather than to trust the ways of the God who made you. Your own decision to live as your own king rather than to obey the king who made you. Jesus died a death that that you deserve to die so that you could be forgiven of sins you've committed against him and his kingdom. And because of his forgiveness, you can have a place no matter who you are, no matter what you bring to the table. You can have peace with God and others and a place in a new world that you could never build for yourself. In fact, I think at least one reason of all the reasons we won't know about why God did not establish his kingdom all at once when Jesus came out of the grave, all the reasons we won't know we'll never be privy to, one thing we do know is that we are waiting in part because God wants you to hear the invitation I give to you right now. Be reconciled to God through Jesus. If you will repent and believe in him, this kingdom is for you. And 2,000 years of waiting has happened so that you and me could hear it and respond to it. Be reconciled to God today. That's an invitation. Now what? That's the question we're trying to answer along with Jesus and his followers in these verses. I want to give you another answer to it now from verses 7 and 8. Now what? Well, now we wait for his kingdom. Not what they were looking for. Probably not what we were looking for. But that's the answer Jesus gives us. That's the posture he calls us to. Now we wait for his kingdom. But that isn't all. Now we also hope in his power. We hope in his power. The waiting humbles us. It means we're not the solution to the world's problems. We won't be the change that we hope to see. That's too big for us. But that same truth that humbles us also gives us hope. And my goodness, friends, that is a wonderful trade to make. See, if the kingdom depends on us, if it'll only come in when we figure out how to bring it, if it'll be based, in other words, on our ingenuity or our willpower or our purity of heart and motive, the kingdom has no better shot in our generation than it has had in any other generation before us. Maybe we sustain our energy for a little while on the front end so long as we can believe we've tapped into something no one else ever has. But eventually, my idealism, my optimism, my energy, it's going to get crushed up against the rocks by the waves of reality. That is going to happen. It always has and always will. Because what I'm going to have to learn over time is that there's more injustice in my own heart much less in this world than I'll ever be able to overcome on my own. But if the kingdom that we wait for doesn't depend on us, oh. What Jesus does here is, is take his, his apostles, his followers' eyes off the calendar and fix them on the one, the person who rules over all and whose purposes are always good. That's the significance of verse 7, for example. It is not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father 
has fixed by his own authority. In other words, the Father has fixed the times and the seasons by his own authority. He's got this. Leave it to him. It's also the significance of the promise of power in verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. That, is going, that promise of power is going to reverberate all through the story of Acts as you watch God work. It's not the story of the apostles building the church. It's the story of God by his word, even using them, building his church in a way that nothing can threaten. We're going to get to what they were actually called to do here in a moment. But for now, I think it's important to notice that it all hinges, even their own role in it. All of it hinges on the power of the God who will send his spirit to them. And friends, that's not just the significance of verse 7 or verse 8. Significance, it's, it's the significance of, of the overall story of Acts from beginning to end. More than any specific person, Acts is bound together by the spread of the message about Jesus the Messiah, a spread that never stops, that only moves forward, and that even gets spurred on by the things people do to try to stop it. The early Christians get persecuted, so they scatter, taking the gospel with them to places it had never been before. Some of the early preachers get thrown into prison, so they evangelize their jailer, who evangelizes his family, and the gospel goes out. Paul gets arrested and brought to Rome to trial. And through it all, the emperor of Rome is basically just funding another missionary journey. God's behind all of it, doing his bidding in his time, in complete control. And that gives it, friends, if the first redirection gives us humility, this is not our kingdom to build. The fact that God is building it and nothing can stop it, that gives us confidence. We can rest on that foundation. This kingdom will come no matter what stands against it. What you need to know is that when you, when you pledge allegiance to this king, yes, absolutely, it will affect your posture in this world. Your life in the world will change. That's for sure. In some ways, it, it may pit you against the powers it, that be, just like it did these early Christian followers. Sometimes you'll have to say, no, we obey God, we can't obey men. Sometimes that will get you in trouble. That's true. When you follow this king... When you see people through the eyes of this king, when you see their needs as needs that matter to you because they matter to him, because they matter, you'll, you'll engage your neighbors and love them in new ways. In other ways, you'll be called to leverage your power and influence toward things that honor him, especially care for the vulnerable. This pledging allegiance to this king doesn't mean pulling away from the world. It does change how we enter this world and its needs. But all that said... Pledging allegiance to Jesus means we are done tying our hopes to the powers that be. Hopes that rise and fall with who they are or what they choose to do. Friends, that's over for us now. Our hope is in his power and what he's doing and what nothing can stop. If Acts shows us anything, it's that God's agenda doesn't depend on a friendly host government. Thanks be to God for that. We don't need advocates in our White House or any other seat of power anywhere in the world to have this work continue. The other thing Acts shows us is that no hostile government could ever stop this work from moving forward because, boy, do they try. And what that means for us, that no friendly government is necessary and no hostile government can stop it, doesn't mean that we withdraw from this world and don't participate in its processes. It doesn't mean that you sit out the 2020 election because you're, you're too holy and removed for all of that. It doesn't mean that. 
We engage because we love our neighbors. Jesus told us to. But as Christians, our hopes are pinned higher than the shifting winds of this or that political moment. Thanks be to God. Our hopes are pinned higher than the shifting winds of this or that political moment and and higher even than the outcome of an important election this year. That leads me to the last answer, something I hope will give us focus not just this year, but every year the Lord gives us life. Now what? Most of the first two answers have been just redirecting what they were thinking and what perhaps we were thinking too. But in the final answer, we get a clarified view of what we are supposed to do now that Jesus has suffered and risen again. I love the simple clarity of verse 8. It shows us that now, the third answer, we testify about Jesus. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, he says. In Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. Friends, think about this. It's all the focus on the kingdom. The kingdom mentioned throughout Luke's gospel. The kingdom mentioned in verse 3. The kingdom mentioned again in verse 6. All this focus on the kingdom. Zeroing in to a single point from which we get our focus and our calling. It is not for you to know when the Father will establish his kingdom. For now we long for it. Yeah, we wait and we hope, of course. But we aren't given to know. So what are we given to do? You will be my witnesses. There it is. It's that simple and straightforward. It'll be their job, these apostles, to tell the truth about Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit, in their city, in their region, and all around the world. What a radical shift of perspective this is. Think about it. They have seen him raised. They've heard his rallying talk about the kingdom. They've heard his command to wait for a power that's soon to come on them. Their anticipation is at a boiling point. Now what? What's next? Well, now go tell everybody what you've seen and heard. That's your role. How does that land on you? I wonder if it seems anticlimactic a little bit, especially now that we've done a little work to try to see from their perspective what their hopes really were, why those hopes made sense. Does it seem anticlimactic that, that what comes next is you testify to Jesus? I understand if it did. I hope that it won't, though, once we've covered more ground in Acts. As you watch these apostles take up this calling and run with it to the ends of the earth. This is a dramatic and powerful story. You'll see. But at this point, I I don't actually blame you if this seems a little bit underwhelming. I mean, lots of movies get made about epic warriors charging out into battle against all odds and overcoming. We know that storyline. We love that storyline. Movies even get made about world changers charging out against the powers that be in sort of metaphorical battle for the good of society. Not a lot of movies get made about preachers or witnesses. The ones that do get made about people who testify about Jesus tend to make us look terrible. That's beside the point. Best case scenario, the role of a witness to Jesus isn't going to be a glamorous role. It won't be. So the call to be a witness here, this zooming in of your role in the kingdom for now, 
on the call that testify about Jesus, that is going to be anticlimactic for you if what you want is something more heroic. I guess another way to say it would be that we absolutely do have to die to the fantasy in which we get to be Jesus. But if we die to that fantasy, if we give that up and accept our place in a kingdom that he gives to us as a free gift through a forgiveness that he offers us by his grace, despite our weakness and rebellion against him, well then, friends, there is nothing anticlimactic about this calling at all. Because Jesus is the climax of this story. He is a completely satisfying resolution to this story. So why wouldn't we? How couldn't we spend ourselves pointing to him? It's the only role that makes sense when you see that it's his story from beginning to end. And the rest of this wonderful book puts this call to witness into live action form. Starts in Jerusalem. That's the first seven chapters or so. Moves on to Judea and Samaria, the next several chapters, and finishes up with Paul and others taking this gospel to the ends of the earth as far as they could while their lives lasted. And friends, before we enter that story together, I want to finish up this morning by making sure that there are two things as clear to you as as I can make them. Before we enter this story, before we watch the live-action version of You Shall Be My Witnesses, scattered out across their world. I want to make sure you know two things, as clearly as I can make them. First, if you are a Christian this morning, your life has a purpose. If you're a Christian, your life has a purpose. You are his witness. You're a witness to what he said and what he has done and what you've seen of him in your own life. And that's what your life is for while you wait. That's the same purpose that belonged to Christians in medieval Germany or Christians in 4th century North Africa or Christians today in 21st century Brazil. It's the same purpose that belongs to Christians living in a democracy like ours or Christians living in a totalitarian regime like Peter and Paul. It's the same purpose given to Christians in poverty and to Christians in wealth, to Christians of every tribe and every tongue, to Christians of every race and language, to Christians male and female, young and old. It is your purpose if you stay home with your kids, your purpose if you're training for your career, your purpose if you love your job that you'll go to tomorrow or hate your job if you go to, when you go to it tomorrow. This is the purpose at the center of your life if you're with Jesus. Not an optional add-on, not the responsibility of the chosen few, not the responsibility of those with the right training but your responsibility, your central purpose as a Christian. So whatever else you may be and do, however else you may spend your time and energy, you are a witness to Jesus. And that matters because no one will ever experience the benefits of his kingdom unless they come into it through repentance and faith in this king. You cannot extend the benefits of God's kingdom to an unbeliever who hasn't repented and believed in Jesus because you took them better health care than they had yesterday. You cannot feed them into God's kingdom. 
You are called to take these good gifts to them as neighbors made in God's image whom you love as Jesus told you to. But they also, to enter this kingdom, must hear that there is a king whose rule they've rejected, who loves them anyway and offers them forgiveness through his own son. So whatever else you do, however worthy and meaningful it is, you are at least and irreducibly a witness to Jesus. Are you living in that light? Does it shape who you see and how you see them? Everyone who has ever believed in Jesus has come to believe because somebody else told them the news and asked them to believe it. That's how we came to Jesus, Christian friends, and that's how anyone else will too. Let's do it together. It's good work to do. A second thing I want to make crystal clear is that if you're a Christian this morning, you are already equipped for this central purpose Jesus has given to your life. You have everything you need. That is the powerful, beautiful, life-changing truth of Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And then and only then, you will be my witnesses. You notice he said, don't go anywhere. Stay right here in Jerusalem. Wait for the promise of the Father. You can't do anything without what he's going to send you. But you know what, friends? That promise has been fulfilled. He came. We'll see it soon in, in the story that tells of it. But it's, it's still true today. And if you're in Christ, you have the power that was promised, the power that they waited on. You don't have to wait for that anymore. The Spirit is in you. And it is God's Spirit and only God's Spirit that moves people from death to life. His Spirit and only His Spirit that opens the eyes of our hearts to see the beauty of Jesus. You have this Spirit with you, and here's what that means. It means it isn't your burden to persuade people. It isn't your burden to be winsome. It isn't your burden to be compelling or to be impressive. God, help me to remember that every time I step up here and every time I step out my door into a world of people who need this news. You have and I have everything that you and I need for our responsibility to share about Jesus. And friends, that's true if you feel uncomfortable talking about him. It's true if you're not much of an apologist and you don't have a whole bunch of answers to give for every question that might be asked of you. It's true if you're introverted and don't really like talking to people in general. It's true if you're not great with words. It's true if you're a brand new Christian. It's true if you've never yet had the courage to tell anyone that you're a Christian, much less that they could be. And it's true if what you feel now most after hearing this story is failure. It is still true that if you're in Christ, you have everything you need to be a witness for Jesus when you walk out of this place this morning. Because his spirit knows how to get the job done. Our responsibility is to witness. 
And my prayer for you and for me as we work through this series is that we're going to see our calling more and more clearly and build together more and more confidence in his power to act through us. I'm going to go ahead and pray over that right now as we continue to worship together this morning. Father, I thank you for speaking to us. And we thank you now for what you have said. That there is a kingdom coming in which all of our longings will be perfectly satisfied. In which justice will spread over all the earth and no one will ever challenge it again. In which there will be no reason for tears because sin and sorrow will be put away forever. And we thank you even more for making a kingdom like this one accessible to sinners like us. And now we pray that you would give us the confidence that we need to talk of this kingdom and its king, even when we feel so inadequate to do that. We pray that this message, even this morning, would deepen our church's commitment to the role you've given us in our city and around the world. And I pray that any person sitting here hearing this this morning who has come in without confidence in your ability to work through them will leave with confidence that will grow. We trust that is partly the work of your word in us that gathers us together each week to build over time the confidence we need to take up the responsibility you've given to us. And now we pray that you would this week give us opportunities to be faithful to what you've called us to this morning. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen.